to Fresh Image. Fresh Image is a nonprofit Catholic ministry committed to providing individuals and communities with resources to facilitate the full flourishing of the image of God in each and every single human person. Not only will you find hundreds of articles, convenient audios and presentations on our beautiful faith, but also catechetical resources to be used in the classroom, at the parish, and at the kitchen table. Today, we are happy to present Fresh Image Gospel Reflections from our founder, Tony Crescio. Tony reminds us that it is when we look into the mirror of Scripture that we discover the unique image of God we have each been created to be. My dear friends in Christ, last Sunday, we heard our Lord tell us that He is going ahead to prepare a place for us in His Father's house, where there are many dwelling places, or mansions. Upon further examination, it became clear that the image was intended to stretch the disciples' imagination to a contemplation of that which truly exceeds every attempt at conceptualization, the eternal dynamics of love that is the triune God. Nevertheless, as Jesus told Thomas, both the mysterious life of the Trinity and what it means for the human creature to enter into that life is fully revealed by the life of the Incarnate Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth Jesus reveals about the life of the Trinity is the way of total self-giving love, which is manifested by the whole life of Jesus, but most fully on the cross, whereas the great high priest, he offers himself completely to the Father. It is this sacrifice, and it alone, which opens the way into the embrace of God for the human family, and the mode of the human family's participation in the divine life is meant to imitate that of the Son. We have been called, as St. Peter told us last weekend, to be a priestly people, who offer themselves through, with, and in the Son to the Heavenly Father. As was said last weekend, This side of eternity, our priestly life is experienced most perfectly in the Eucharistic liturgy, where the sacrifice of the Son as head is participated in by the members of his body, the Church. This is why the sacrifice of the Mass is the source and summit of the Christian life. And, as source and summit, it is meant to shape the whole of our lives so that all things we say and do are caught up in this one sacrifice of the whole Christ, head and body. This is what the Catechism teaches us in paragraph 1368, where we read that the lives of the faithful, their praise, sufferings, prayer, and work are united with those of Christ and with his total offering, and so acquire a new value. The question becomes, how do we live a life that both flows directly from the Eucharist and has its logical summit in that very same sacrifice? Our readings for today provide us with the answer. This Sunday's Gospel reading follows directly upon last Sunday's, and thus it too is part of Jesus' farewell discourse in the Gospel of John. The first words Jesus speaks to us this Sunday are likely to strike a dissonant chord in our postmodern ears. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Such words are easy bait for many today, whose sensibilities have been formed by a Nietzschean and Foucauldian hermeneutics of suspicion rather than scripture. Consequently, many would respond to these words with charges of patriarchal coercion, for this is what the postmodern mind has been trained to see and hear everywhere. The criticism would run something along the lines that Jesus is trying to coerce his disciples by saying, If you really love me, 
You'll do what I tell you. From this perspective, the next line would only seem to prove the point. For Jesus says next, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. A postmodern sensibility would say, See, now he's saying that if we're good and do as he says, he is going to give us something special that he won't give to those who disobey him. In short, in Jesus' words, the postmodern secularist sensibility here's an attempt to make us good little boys and girls and do what we're told. However, such a reading is nothing more than a classic case of projection. Secularists hear this in Jesus' words because this is the way the world works. A quick look at the daily news makes it clear that if you don't get in line with the vision of reality projected by today's elites and their accompanying mores, you are not welcome to participate in society and will be promptly canceled. But this is not the way God works. So then, is Jesus really saying that if we love him, we will do as he tells us? You bet. That's exactly what he's saying, and to suggest otherwise would be a clear distortion of the sacred page. However, there is no coercion here. Rather, it is a statement of reality. What we have in the words of Jesus are basically the rules of the Father's house, spoken of last weekend. And this house is creation itself, and all that constitutes it. For all creation was made for participation in the divine life, and therefore it has been created based on the dynamics of divine love. This, if you want, is the law of the Father's house. Here it is helpful to ask ourselves, what is a home? Well, among other things, a home functions something like a central hub or anchor point for those who share a life together. So, Jesus is saying, if you are to share the Father's life through, with, and in me, you must live according to my commandments. At this point, another pertinent question arises. What commandments is Jesus referring to? Just previous to the beginning of his farewell discourse in chapter 13 of John's Gospel, Jesus says to his disciples, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. Another question immediately arises. How did Jesus love his disciples? At the beginning of chapter 13, John tells us that Jesus loved his own who were in the world to the end. The words to the end here have a few interrelated meanings. First, the Greek word translated as the end here is telos. Thus, the end signifies a completion. This brings in the second meaning. And here it is important to bring in a line spoken by Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus tells us, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Accordingly, when John tells us that Jesus loved his disciples to the telos, he is telling us that Jesus loved his disciples to the completion of the law. The whole of Jesus' life and teaching makes manifest the fulfillment of the law given to the people of Israel through Moses and preached down the centuries by the prophets. However, the most eloquent expression of the telos of the law is the cross. The love displayed on the cross that exemplifies most perfectly what the law was about all along, teaching the human family how to love as God loves, completely and without reserve. Thus, Jesus also loves the human family to the extreme end, to the end of God-forsakenness on the cross, so that the whole of the human family might be drawn back into perfect communion with God that his very incarnation realizes. As the teaching of Chalcedon in 451 stated, In the incarnation, the divine and human natures unite 
without confusion, without mixture, without separation, and without division. By his paschal mystery, the incarnate Son makes possible a relationship between the human family and God analogous to the one which obtains in his very person. The human family need no longer be estranged from relationship with God, precisely because the incarnate Son has loved us to the end, releasing us from the hold sin and death once had over us. This is what the divine law first given to Moses had been driving at all along, to draw the human family into ever deeper and more perfect communion with God. This becomes clear when we remember that the giving of the law comes in the context of God's covenantal relationship with the people of Israel. Consequently, in chapter 24 of the book of Exodus, we are told that after God had given the law to Moses, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, to which the people answered with one voice, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses then sprinkled the blood of sacrificial oxen upon the people of Israel and said to them, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. The blood of the sacrifice was a sign of the people's agreement to live in covenantal relationship with God as prescribed by the law. Time and again, this covenantal relationship between the people and God is described by the prophets as a marriage, and conversely, the breaking of the covenant as adultery. The most famous example of this is the prophet Hosea. After using very stark language to describe the adulterous breaking of the covenant by the people of Israel and the judgment which was to follow as a result, God describes his reconciliation with the people through Hosea in this way. On that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. I will take you for my wife forever. I will take you for my wife in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will take you for my wife in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It is in the life of the Son of God incarnate that the mercy and fidelity of God's love is fully revealed to the world, and by his paschal mystery, that the reconciliation described by Hosea takes place. Thus, on the eve of his passion, our Lord took a cup of wine, and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins." Each and every single time we participate in the Eucharistic liturgy and receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of the Son of God, the covenantal relationship between God and His people is consummated. The loving unity between God and the human family made possible by the sacrifice of the cross realized. And just as any marriage must be lived day in and day out, this moment of intense unity between God and ourselves must be lived out in a life completely characterized by that relationship. This is what the law first given to Moses at Sinai was meant to help the people do. Thus, in his letter to the Galatians, St. Paul describes the law as pedagogos. A pedagogos was a slave who had care of the boys of a family, charged to oversee the children's education and moral development. Accordingly, the law teaches us how to live in covenantal relationship with God. And if we take a look at the structure of the core of the law, the Ten Commandments, it becomes clear that living in covenantal relationship with God has everything to do with how we live in relationship with one another as well. In Sermon 33, Augustine divides the Ten Commandments into three and seven. He says, So too the Ten Commandments were given on two tables. Three, that is, are said to have been inscribed on one table and seven on another. Just as the first three belong to love of God, so the seven others are assigned to love of neighbor. Thus, each of the commandments have either to do with how we are to give ourselves lovingly to God or how we are to give ourselves lovingly to our neighbor. 
This is why when asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus provides a law which summarizes both tables of the Decalogue. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Our Lord gives clear primacy to the first table, which orders our relationship with God, because one's neighbor, a creature created in God's very image, can only be loved rightly in relation with and reference to God. Each and every time this is forgotten, our relationships with one another become distorted. This too is on full display in the prophets, most famously perhaps by the prophet Amos, who is known as the prophet of social justice. God charges the people, especially the elites of society, with all sorts of injustices including economic dishonesty, aimed at taking advantage of the poor, and distortion of the understanding of justice itself. Evidently, some things never change. But what Amos points out together with all the prophets is that on our own, the human family is utterly incapable of living the law of God rightly. And because we fail to live the law of God, our relationships with one another too become horribly distorted. Consequently, to have both our relationships with one another and with God repaired required a remedy. This remedy is described by the prophet Jeremiah in this way. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. The question becomes how God will write his law upon our hearts. As we have seen, the law of God is summarized by love for God and neighbor. Thus, the Christian tradition associates the divine law written on the human heart with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, often spoken of as the love which obtains between the Father and the Son from all eternity. Now listen to how Jesus too associates the sending of the Holy Spirit with knowledge of God today, just as Jeremiah had. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, because he abides with you, and he will be in you. It is thus the Holy Spirit, the love of God, whose indwelling enables us to live the law of love, the law of self-gift. And just as the Holy Spirit binds Father and Son in an embrace of eternal love, so too the Holy Spirit draws us into the divine life, and thereby closer to one another as we all converge in the Father's embrace. My friends, what the giving of the law in itself had no power to do, the very power of God enables us to. In and of ourselves, we have no ability to love as we have been created to. Evidence of this is everywhere, in the violence of our streets, the wars in our world, and the constant bickering we experience as a nation and a church. God did not create us for such division or chaos. He created us for loving communion with one another in Him, a communion that is achieved by living as he lives, a life of complete self-giving love. This is what the law prescribes, and yet the law is angrily rejected by the human family time and again. Several weeks ago, the Senate of the state of Texas passed two bills requiring the Ten Commandments to be displayed in classrooms and that time be made available in school for reading scripture and prayer for students and faculty who wish. The backlash was immediate people claiming that this is an egregious violation of the separation of church and state, 
The question we might ask is, which of the Ten Commandments do these people find so offensive? At bottom, the issue is that the world is mad because it has forgotten what the divine law is all about, and consequently, the world has forgotten how to love. It is the vocation of the Christian, as priest, prophet, and king, to remind the world how to love by showing them what authentic love looks like. By living the divine law, once written on tablets but now written on our hearts by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we show the world that living the law is living a life of self-sacrificing love. By so living, we become sacramental agents of the world's transfiguration, consecrating it in its entirety to relationship with God, and by God's grace draw those around us, especially the disgruntled naysayers, just a bit closer to the divine embrace. Thank you for listening to this week's Gospel Reflection. For more resources, please visit us at freshimage.org. And remember, when you live a fresh life, you will be a breath of God's fresh, life-giving air to the world.